This is a show about individual experience and personal identity. There may be times when folks use identifying words or phrases that don't feel right to you. That's part of what we're exploring here. Please listen with an open heart. And as always, I welcome your polite, engaged feedback. And I encourage you to continue the conversation in your own life and with your own community. Welcome to Query. Hey, Queros, Cammy here. Phew, phew. These are all the noises I can make. I can make other noises too. Um, I'm making, I am responding that way because you know what we've had recently? We've had some people that came on as like $25 a month donors on the Patreon. I don't know how to explain that. Patreon.com slash Hey Queros. 25 bucks a month? Thank you. I do work that hard. I do work that hard. In fact, I want to thank this month's patrons, Ethan Peterson, Amy A., Audrey Rauer, Brenda Wyas-Macito, Brittany Carlson, Catherine Michaels, Chloe Vicker, Danny Elkhorn, Fiona Ding, Hannah Booth, Jamie, Jen Graf-Perkins, Jennifer Hunt, Kevin Fry, Lauren Snodgrass, Levon Sawake, Liesl Jensen, Jensen, Liesl Jensen, Madeline Broom, Paula Vividowski, and Rachel McIntyre. Oh, it's so cool. I get to meet a lot of those people. We do these hangs. Sierra comes. They're on the internet. It's extremely fun. Speaking of things that are extremely fun, a podcast, an episode of the podcast. That's what you're listening to right now. Today, we've got Case and Calendar, an awesome author um, known for books like Felix Ever After. I love this conversation, and I hope you love this conversation. Thank you, Queeros. I've been feeling wrong, but I'm still holding on, darling. I know, I know, I know it's careless. Good morning. Hello. Good afternoon for me. Oh, yeah. Are you you're on the East Coast? Yeah. It's one o'clock over here. Well, heavens, how's it going? How's the day? Tell me what the future is like. <laughs> the future is cloudy, but hmm. I kind of prefer cloudy and gray anyway. So I always have uh, guests introduce themselves. Will you introduce yourself? Sure. I am Kaysen Callender. I'm the author of several novels at this point for children, especially Hurricane Child, King and the Dragonflies, which um, just won the National Book Award. And two novels for YA. This is kind of an epic love story and Felix Ever After. Um, and my two adult novels are Queen of the Conquered and King of the Rising. And those are two fantasy books. And uh, Felix Ever After has is uh, your paperback. Your paperback edition is coming out soon for that. Yeah. Yes, the 20th? On, on the 20th, yep. Is that is that the next um, sort of iteration of things for you in the in the book world is that the next thing coming up that is the next thing that's coming out um after that there actually well i'll not be able to speak about that yet and i forgot to ask <laughs> it <but laughs> you got it you got a secret thing coming out i do yeah i have a secret thing coming out that i'm really excited about but i'm not actually allowed to talk about that more well that's fine i mean leave them wanting more um yeah this is this is I mean, I don't know. I feel like it's extremely impressive the number of things that you've written and the number of awards that they've garnered. I like it to me. I wrote a book and I'm just going to tell you that was not an easy experience. <laughs> it's so, not easy. Yeah. Um, so first of all, you know, 
congrats. And also congrats on the the really wonderful reception that your work has been getting, is thank getting. You. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I mean, writing a book is very difficult. So I would say don't, <laughs> don't diminish yourself. That's impressive also. Talk to me about your process getting started um, as a writer. Did you always know you wanted to do this? Yeah, you know, when I was um, a teenager, I was super into fan fiction. And I think that was because that was the only space I could find uh, queer fiction, queer stories. So it wasn't really quite in like the mainstream yet. So I was super into fan fiction for anime. And I was writing the queer fan fiction. I was reading the queer fan fiction. Um, and then from there, someone actually read something that I wrote and said, you could probably make this into an original. And I think that that was my... So one stranger on the internet changed my life and gave me the spark of, oh, I guess I could write my own original novels. And that became um, my main passion, especially as I, as I mentioned, like there just wasn't a lot of queer mainstream um, fiction at that time for YA. And that was one of my favorite age ranges. Um, and then especially for like intersectional identities as like a black person, as a queer person. Eventually I discovered I was um, trans as a trans person. So that became my main passion objective was to really bring more diversity into um, the mainstream storytelling with books like Felix Ever After, um, which has also gained adapted into a TV series. And I'm super pumped to see like yeah, a black queer congrats. trans person. Thank you. Yeah. I'm super excited to see that on TV for the first time. Someone that shares my identities. Um, so, yeah, that's basically how it all started. You and Stephanie Meyer, huh? Both. <laughs> 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 I'm, I'm so sorry, but uh, <laughs> but I, I think technically that is the truth. Um, yeah. I mean, she did. I'm not. Yeah, I'm not gonna um, rain on Stephanie Myers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she she really did revolutionize all of YA. Like, um, I was just looking at a timeline, actually, literally maybe two days ago, of all YA books from like 2000, and hers published in 2005, and that was the spark of everything changing where yeah i guess there was like the princess diaries or like ella enchanted every now and then that became a um a film and became made like ya such a popular genre but as soon as stephanie myers hit that's when you start getting books like the hunger games and divergence mm -hmm. and you know so yeah absolutely i also am like tracking that um like fan fiction to uh like mainstream success in mm. the literary world and that is we are sort of it's we're in an interesting era, like, for instance, Glennon Doyle has had, you know, the number one um, nonfiction bestseller for a year. And like she started as a mommy blogger, you know, so mm -hmm. we are sort of in that era where people have been more the Internet. We're writing on the Internet has been around long enough that like it is a legitimate path toward um, success for some folks. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I'm curious about that. You said that one person reached out. Was that a person who had power in the literary world? Was that like, a, or was no. it just like a random human? Random human that doesn't even know that they changed my life. God, I love that. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. So that's just like someone visiting, reading this thing, and then like sending you a message or commenting on it. Yeah, you know, on fanfiction.net, um, that's the platform I don't know. Using. Please, <laughs> tell me more about fanfiction.net. Yeah, yeah. that was where I was spending my um, all of my free time. And basically, there's just a way to review on any story that you read. So a person, like, reviewed it and said, I love this, and you should consider making your own original stuff, so. Wow. What yeah. was it fanfiction of? What were you writing? 
you know, unfortunately, it was um, it was a lot of anime, like I mentioned, but unfortunately, one of my main uh, it was Harry Potter, and that's like really sucky to have to talk about because or to acknowledge because um, Harry Potter was such a huge part of my childhood, and of course, now J.K. Rowling is super turf. Yeah, that's really painful. Yeah, I'm I'm super I'm I'm sorry about that, and what a pain that like you're right, yeah, that that's now something that you when talking about it it's just like a totally different weight that it has for the mm-hmm. listener i really don't understand how she can't know that you know that piece of things how much she hurts the fandom that um are the exact people who need that sort of like spiritual storytelling that also provides a relief from reality um, yeah and you know i think um one of my own faults was not recognizing until she was openly transphobic that the book was actually, the book series was really harmful to a lot of people even before um, she became openly transphobic. Like, I did not realize that the goblins were anti-Semitic. I did not realize that she had so many stereotypes of other people. And it, it kind of actually was kind of like an almost constant apology for a lot of us where we constantly said, oh, yeah, Cho Chang, that's really racist. That's a mistake that she made. You know, I, I guess we can live with that. But no, at this point, um, and it should have been from the beginning. No, that's unacceptable. Yeah, I hear you. I mean, and I'm not try- I, I think like to have some compassion for ourselves in. I mean, I don't know. You're, you're obviously a different person than me, but I. Yeah, of course. Like, yes, no, the only Asian character should not be called Cho Chang. Also, another thing that exists in that book, and, I, you know, I don't need to tell you, is that like the white people's skin color is never described like mm-hmm. oh my good you know good good gracious um but i also think that you know when we're all steeped in a culture of white supremacy that is forwarding books where that's just the norm i mean you know you read huck finn in school and the teacher gives a disclaimer but doesn't give a disclaimer for harry potter or whatever it's i think it's yeah. a lot of it's a lot of catching up that we all have to do yeah, but, you know, ironically, um, for especially millennials, I think we like to say that uh, J.K. Rowling taught us how to have empathy. So even if she is not someone who has a lot of empathy, and especially because there's been so, there have been so many studies about how um, storytelling and writing and reading uh, teaches people empathy because we begin to learn to look from other people's perspectives. So she has taught us to love others and to accept others, and she has raised an entire generation of um, very passionate writers who really want to teach empathy to others. So it's almost ironic that she has been so painful and so unempathetic and so um, mm. ignorant. But I, there are multiple. I'm not the only trans um, person of color who's writing now because of her and is teaching trans people how to love themselves or trying to help trans people help love themselves through our stories um, and teaching others that we deserve more respect through our stories, too. Yeah. Right. I mean, I guess I, when did you publish, give me a year for when you've published your first book. My first book was Hurricane Child and that came out in 2018. Um, But my second book also came out in 2018 and that was, this is kind of an epic love story. I feel very happy that we're in a moment right now where um, your books are not only being published, but also uh, lauded and and being developed into into TV shows. I don't I don't know um 
and this could be like a, a gap in my own vision or understanding or like recall, but, you know, did you grow up with folks that, that you could look to who had successful careers and shared your identity? I mean, is that, am I missing folks? Um, as a, well, when I was younger, uh, I did not identify as queer or trans yet. I just didn't have access to that language or to, um, even seen examples of that so that I could say, so I could see an example and point and say, oh, that's me. Um, I mean, the hints are there every single time I look back on it, it's like so obvious. I even told my mom once that I think that I might be a boy and she was like, well, that's weird. And <laughs> I just didn't understand that that is, um, what it means to be trans. Um, and of course you should not have said that that's weird because it's not weird at all. But, um, I, think that I had examples of Black people, but who are writers, but I think that um, subconsciously I was not really quite connecting because I, I knew that there was something else, like the way that my intersectional identities affect the way that I am Black in this world would not really help me always connect to the stories that Black cis straight people were telling. So I just never felt as interested um, in those stories when they were given to me. But when I see, when I saw queer uh, trans stories, I also felt sometimes like this isn't quite me either because they're from white perspectives and white authors. So really being able to find the perfect, I mean, honestly, Felix Ever After is the only example that I know of at this time um, for <laughs> YA. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, that's out, actually, that's out. And I wish that I had looked up the name of the book before because it's like on the tip of my tongue but it is Isaac Fitzsimmons the playbook something playbook um and that's the other it's, that's another YA that's coming out very soon that features a black uh trans protagonist at the very least so I'm really excited about that there are gonna be more stories coming yes of course of yeah. yeah 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 right yes I mean well some of that is I mean I think that is why it's the linking it to something like writing for infection or, or having feedback on the internet, like that makes sense to me, right? Specifically because of what we're talking about, where it's, where it's a world that, you know, you're looking at publishing however many years ago that was that you were writing fan fiction. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, you, you were yet to write feelings ever after. So there wasn't anything to read in that space. Um, and that, I, I mean, I don't know. I I work. I live with some, I'm partnered with somebody who works in publishing, specifically trying to um, forward queer voices and so like and uh, BIPOC voices. So like maybe I'm just confused about what the actual landscape is. But in my household, it feels like it's changing. <laughs> like I don't. Oh, know. for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's changing. Yeah. Um, maybe not fast enough for how desperately society needs it to change but it is changing at the very least for sure for sure i don't know so you are on the east coast but where what city where do you live where do you live i'm in philadelphia oh god i love philadelphia i do is too it, but i'm actually that, moving to st thomas in like a month so you are yeah oh talk talk to me about that you're moving to st thomas I'm originally from there, so I'm just moving back to be with family to, um, I mean, it's the middle of the pandemic and it doesn't really make much sense to be up here paying rent and I'm not even leaving the apartment. So just going to go back to be with family. When is, when did you move to Philadelphia? 
I was in New York um, for about 10 years. And then I moved to, I was working in publishing there. And then I moved to Philadelphia um, right at the start of the pandemic. Hmm. Is that right? I don't think so. Actually, I think I was there maybe like a year before the pandemic and then the pandemic hit. Yeah. So you've lived in the States for more than a decade. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how are you feeling about going home? It's going to be tough because, uh, the, I mean, there's anti-queerness and transphobia up here also, but there is such a culture of it in the Caribbean um, that's like deeply entrenched with colonization and um, Christianity and just like a nasty mix of um, just feeling very unwelcome whenever I'm there and feeling kind of like, unfortunately, just kind of scared to walk down the street. I don't feel like I'm going to be physically attacked, but I feel like I get a lot more stares whenever I'm there rather than up here. And especially because it's a smaller community, um, people will be like, wait a minute, everyone like knows everyone basically so my mom's Barbara and my dad's Caswell they can be like Barbara and Caswell didn't have a daughter before what who's that you know it's gonna be very um yeah it's gonna be stressful are you setting up some support stuff for yourself in that I was thinking about it but I think right now um I've been really going deeply into like a lot of healing and a lot of spirituality that's been allowing me to focus on support from myself first, rather than looking at it or looking for support outside of myself, though that's also important. Just where I am right now, I feel like it's even more important to focus on myself first. Yeah. I mean, that's setting up support for yourself. Do you yeah. want to, do you want to talk a little bit about that? I'm, I'm curious about what this means. Like what, if, if you could describe this spiritual experience that you're having. Sure. Um, Well, the pandemic, of course, I think it's been a spiritual experience for a lot of people because it forced all of us to stop and pause and reflect. Um, And I had started therapy right before it's that, you know, before quarantine began. Um, And I think that was the first time I began to really look at cycles in my life. Um, For me, spirituality means a lot of things, but it means healing first and foremost and figuring out where our traumas have kind of created cycles that we are unable to see and because of that, unable to learn and grow in the way that we're supposed to. So I was able to see cycles for the first time and my spirituality, my spiritualism is when you start to heal, you start to actually become more entrenched in spirituality in the way of like seeing spirits and hearing spirits. And that's been happening a lot more, but I try not to focus on that part because I think that that is where things very easily become muddled, where I myself begin to start to think spirituality is more about seeing spirits and hearing spirits and crystals and astral projection and all these kind of like innate gifts that we humans have, whereas it we're, we're here to, well, for me, I think that we're here to learn and to grow. And all that comes after, inevitably, <laughs> when we're not on this earth anymore. So um, that has also really helped with my writing, too, kind of like figuring out that literally every human is a character in a story. We all have our traumas and we're all on these character arcs where we're learning from our traumas and we have multiple traumas and they're all intertwined. and. Um, that helped me realize, well, that's why storytelling exists, because we're trying to communicate these same traumas and communicate these same lessons to other people um, so that we can learn from these characters who 
quote unquote, aren't even real. I mean, that's a whole other conversation. If we've created something, then it's real, right? Um, but so because of that, that's really helped me with my writing too, because I've started to discover that my characters you know, before I always kind of gave them a trauma, but it wasn't necessarily with the focus of they must heal and they must learn and they must grow. Um, some of my characters did not learn and grow, and that was okay because I think that it also had the message of there are consequences if you don't learn and grow. But um, I think before I was more invested in how do I tell the story that will be super popular and get like a lot of people to be excited and get the, the TV and movie deal and get the awards and all that has been great, but it's given me like a renewed purpose in my writing. Yeah, that's beautiful. It it doesn't based on what you're saying, it doesn't so it doesn't so much surprise me that you would be making a choice to move home. Um, because mm-hmm. that feels I don't know. I've been, you know, I like you said, I've I've been I've been on this journey um really in the last couple of years of my life that is um, you know, I had I like went through a divorce and that changed the way that I interacted with work because there was a lot of overlap um, with my marriage in that sphere, you know? And so like, I couldn't hide in work anymore. And I also felt like that was a loaded community. Um, And then also queerness, like that's a wonderful thing about um, dating and marrying in queer community is like, you're really like two steps away from each other for the rest of your life. It's like a nightmare, Um, you know? And then, but, but, there's that thing. Right. And so then, you know, I was like looking back at, okay, what are other communities that I could connect to just to like get some, some relief or, or what parts of myself can I connect to that are not, that are not this, like, cause I, so I need, I need something right now. That's not this because that's, that's currently just need That's in like a healing zone. Um, and then I looked back in my life a lot. And then that's when I found, you know, this rift that I had had with my own faith and with my own spiritual life and, um, I sort of processed a lot of stuff that had happened in coming out in a different way, you know, like from way far in the future. Um, and I just realized this, I mean, I was like, you know, this is coming from some like meditation app that I was listening to, but, but it's true, you know, like, um, that it, some, some, the idea was that like, if we are running towards something or away from something external, ideas, concepts, people, places have power over us. Mm-hmm. So if we are still, you know, then we have power over ourselves. And I mean, obviously that's like an ideal that I think is probably pretty hard to, I'm not, I don't, I don't think that we're going for perfection there. Cause that seems, mm-hmm. you know, impossible. We're human beings who so are going to be affected by things around us. But I think I hadn't realized, you know, um, how much running away and how much running toward I was doing mm-hmm. um, because of a zillion different core wounds from being a little kid that like I couldn't tell what was going on with my gender and so you know start doing running toward and running away it never stopped um and I'm really I'm really um living with that in a different way and it has for me looked like going back to some places and some people from earlier in my life to see to just sort of check like is this a safe person or place you know like I I think it I think I don't know, you know, and so then just kind of discovering in some in some people in places, no, and some people in places, yes. And uh, it really is that, you know, my trauma affected my tolerance for other people and, mm-hmm. and places and things, you know. And so I, 
in going back in a more healed way. It's like some, some things that felt not okay. I could be there if I wasn't doing that running toward and running away, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and some places like, no, don't, don't ever go there again. (laughs) Um, but I'm curious if that, you know, if any of that resonates with you in this choice that you're making, I know you said family, but also then you give this answer and I'm like, Hmm, maybe also other stuff. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I've got so many traumas that I don't think I want to discuss because, um, like energetic boundaries, but also I don't want to like potentially trigger anyone that is listening, but I've got like some, you know, some stuff that has really affected me. And I've been, that's partly been a reason why I've also been afraid to go back. Mm -hmm. Um, And it does feel like, you know, um, in my belief, there are definitely moments where like the universe spirit guides, spirits are like, do this, do this, you got to go. And I feel like they've been saying, go back to St. Thomas for like the past two years. And I'd be like, no, no, I don't want to (laughs) go. And then they're like, okay, that's fine. And they will shift everything so that you're forced to go. And I'm in this moment of, yeah, that's basically the only path I can take to go back to force me to um, confront what I've been not wanting to confront for some time. So absolutely, I've been running away. And mm, it's going to, as you said earlier, st- to be still and to let yourself have power over that, that moment is going to be um, something I'm not really looking forward to, but I can feel that it's necessary if I do want to continue to learn and grow. Hmm. What is... I don't think I know enough about St. Thomas specifically in terms of um, like what's going on there these days politically. Like what is it like in relationship today to colonialism or who's in power there? You know, what's the racial demographic and breakdown? Yeah, I mean, St. Thomas is very, well, I should say the U.S. Virgin Islands in general is um, very interesting in that most people don't think of it. They think mostly of Puerto Rico when they think of colonialism, that the United States is um, still kind of like forcing its power over people. Um, But there's Guam, that's also another territory. And just the use of language, like literally territory is so um, colonial, (laughs) very, very um, entrenched in like colonialism. And we don't have the right to vote for a president. That's something that is... um, been kind of like a back and forth for some time because if Puerto Rico was given the right to vote along with the U.S. Virgin Islands, then that would become a kind of internal conflict between Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands because they would probably have more of a say over who we together would vote for rather than separately, if that makes any sense. Um, So the way that it it would potentially work is that if Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands were given the right to vote for president of the United States, Puerto Rico has a larger citizenship. So they would, like, if we were combined, yeah. So if we were combined, then Puerto Rico's choice would always engulf our choice. So I see what you're saying. Yeah. So um, there's always been a back and forth of would it even make any sense to be able to vote for president while also wanting to um, say, yes, we should have the validation that we're U.S. citizens. Why are we considered territory? Don't have the same rights. And then all of that with the, um, uncomfortable layer of how it's the island is being so gentrified by a lot of um, white state siders who are very openly racist and who come to the island knowing that it's mostly black people um, and are buying um, a lot of properties that are kind of forcing black people out in you know the way of gentrification works but 
it's interesting because we have nowhere else to go. We're literally on an island, so we can't escape. We can't leave because we're surrounded by water. So it's like we're being pushed out without anywhere really to go. Our property is being bought. The beaches, which are supposed to be free and open to everyone, are um, being privatized. So there's a lot. Um, at the same time, there's like that gentrification and that racism, but we also depend on it for our economy. We depend on like white tourists who come in with their racism. So it's like a very ugly um, relationship, like a love-hate relationship where we have to love, I think. So a lot of people um, are very like openly welcoming to tourists. That's how we get by. And then we're also kind of like underneath. It's kind of gross that we have to depend on this. Yeah, horrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, <laughs> besides tourism, is there another industry? I think that um, St. Croix has had industry with oil, but then the main oil um, company on that island shut down, which was a was devastating to the economy. Um, that happened a few years ago at this point, actually. But they've also been into agriculture. Um, you know, they're shipping. Um, or fishing. Uh, Crucian rum is like a popular rum and that's also over on St. Croix. So yeah, there are other things. Um, I think that we've just grown to depend so much on tourism that we have not um, thought to kind of like develop these other avenues so that we're not so dependent, especially with something like the pandemic where it was dangerous, where people stopped coming, but we actually still needed people to to continue to come. And you can't, Again, like I was very scared for my parents. You're stuck on an island. The hos- if the hospital shuts down and is overwhelmed, there's only one hospital. What are you going to do if you if everyone gets sick? You know, um, luckily everyone. Be- I think because of that, everyone on the island took it super seriously. You're, it's very from what I hear, no one plays games with this like no mask, anti mask. If someone tries to say I'm not putting on my mask, it's just completely like shut down immediately because. Yeah, again, there's like only one hospital. There's just no space for um, for um, playing around with that. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I would also imagine that in terms of the other economic engines, I'm just going to assume that like it's not a bunch of um, black islanders who own the Crucian rum no. brands. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? You know, what? honestly, maybe I I don't know for I don't, sure, I'm but just, I'm assuming we, not. Yeah, we don't know. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing, and wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org slash newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! When I was in college and I was super involved in the Catholic Church, the way that I was super involved in the Catholic Church was that I would go to some places where um, the Catholic Church was like 
doing relief work, mm. putting that in quotes, and help, again, quotes, help out. I say in that because it's like I was a theology student, like going to a hospital situation, like literally it was just a pair of hands, you know, it wasn't like a, it, it wasn't the, I wasn't necessarily the most helpful person to be there. You know, I would like mm. go to some places where what they needed was infrastructure and it's like, okay, well, I have read the Bible. You know, like, it's like, this is not the right person to be here for this. You know, um, at the time it was like the most, it was, I, I thought that this was a path to social justice. I didn't see yet. And in these experiences had the awakening of like, oh, this is actually doubling down on, on colonialism. When you bring in like white people with a faith affiliation to be like, how can we help you? That is dehumanizing. It's unhelpful. It, and mm-hmm. I'm not the right person to do the job. And um, anyway, I had the I had this this experience, and because of that, like one place I went was Jamaica, and mm-hmm. saw what was going on there. You know, the Catholic Church owns some of this beachfront property that you're talking about. That was really like when I saw that, I was like, oh, none of this is anything. Like, there's no right. reason that these priests need to own this beach like this is this is nothing you know is this how how are you uh well i'm just thinking um i struggle a lot with not the faith of christianity um i myself kind of like adopt language from different religions and use like god at times i don't have the struggle i don't struggle with the faith of it i struggle with the way people have used that to kind of like brainwash others and um, honestly fool themselves into thinking that it is about faith when it's really about capitalism and it's really about control yes. and putting um using power over people um but you through fear and i also struggle with how because of that there is like such a backlash to christianity when there are people who actually have faith and are actually not necessarily trying to use that to harm others and it's becoming like just a tangled painful web of I just wish um, we could return to the core of it, which was not capitalism and it was not controlling others through fear and anger and hatred. Yeah, me too. Yeah. We share that. Um, I think I was saying that to say that because I had this experience, um, I I feel like I understand a little bit more about the U.S., our actual positioning currently. Like, it doesn't feel like the past to me, you know, Mm -hmm. because of this. And because of where I was raised and, and, you know, like I'm from the suburbs of Chicago and a white person going through the Catholic school system. It's like, have, I think, absent these experiences, I might not know what you were talking about when you're talking about the pain of a word like territory. Um, And I'm curious, you know, in your experience, like growing up where you did and then coming here and living here for, living stateside for over a decade, you know, if, if that, I mean, I just would imagine that you might be in like a state of perpetual exhaustion in people not having context for what you're, for what you're talking about, you know, where you're from and what the the U S is doing there. Um, and also by the way, if any of this is like, yo, I don't want to talk about this at one thirty on a Friday, please let me know. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, I do think it's a little hard to talk about, but um, I will say that 
I've let it go. I've had to let it mm-hmm. go because these are the sort of things that destroy you if you don't let it go. Um, and I think that that is unfortunately what most of us have done. It, like we could fight our entire lives for the right to vote or, and a lot of people have, a lot of people have gone on food strikes and um, it's not something that will easily shift when most people don't even know that we exist. So I think that I've turned my attention to something that I feel like I can change, which is writing, which is changing um, uh, the landscape of, you know, identities through stories or the landscape of representation, I mean. Um, so that's what I can focus on and that's what I can control. And I'm not able to, they're just, I, I feel like I saw on social media recently that someone said, choose what you're going to put your focus on because you can't save every single you can't like be the social justice warrior and and fight and change every single thing in the world and that's the one thing i've i've stuck to recently yeah i think that is going to be super helpful for listeners i mean i that's that's like a i think that's a um yeah that's a beautiful way to be in the world and we talked a little bit about you know you getting into writing and not seeing necessarily people who were your peers um, in terms of identity, but but is, has that changed at all? It, thinking about where we are right now in 2021 in terms of either like something that's going to be on television or something that's being published or something that's being appreciated or having a public profile. Are you finding yourself with peers these days or do you f- still feel peerless? Absolutely. Um, I really wish that I could remember Isaac Fitzsimmons' book, but even just the, <laughs> um, even just having like another author that shares a very similar identity. Um, he's going to be published, I think, in like either this year or next year. Um, and there are so many. There's been like an explosion, especially of transmasculine voices recently. Um, in, within YA, and I think the landscape is definitely changing. I feel like. Um, there was a moment look in YA where I think we all simultaneously realized that we are not being seen. And so we all wrote at the same time without knowing each other. And then suddenly we're all published at the same time. So, and I, I think that the, it's going to continue to change. So I'm definitely not um, alone with representation. Yeah. I think that right now I've tried, I've decided to start to put my focus not only into representation, but into as we were talking about earlier, kind of like how to help with um, the potential healing of not only my characters, but my readers. And one thing I've really realized is that this is a sudden shift in topic. So I hope that you can stick with me me through it. But yeah, I realized that I really did not love myself like at all um, until maybe a few months ago and realizing that I even hated myself. And that's because I was trained to hate myself. We're in the society where we're never good enough. You know, it's a capitalistic society. So we're literally never good enough. We're being told that you have to buy this and you have to look this way, et cetera, to be worthy of love, especially as someone with multiple intersecting identities. Like I say, in Felix Ever After, he felt like he was one marginalization too many. And that's something that I struggled with a lot, feeling like I'm not the white cis straight person. I don't have this privilege that is usually what what is considered worthy of love. So I really struggled a lot with actually not just telling myself I love myself, but actually like feeling it vibrationally and saying and really just like sitting with that emotion. Um, and I 
think that the more I discuss that openly, the more people realize that they don't love themselves either. And I wonder how it is that I can learn to love myself. Like, like an, ex- an exercise I've started to do is to kind of like look at someone else that I love in my life, like my mother, and feel that love for her and try to turn it back on myself. And in that moment, that's the moment of like, I love her so much. Why can't I feel that like in my body for myself? There's like so much shame, right? Um, so basically like trying to transmute that through my writing has been like the new goal. I want to continue to see myself represented. I will continue to have black, queer, trans characters, but to help readers, especially young readers, when I especially hated myself so much as a teenager and even into my adulthood, kind of learn to hopefully start their own journeys if they're not already on it to learn to love themselves more is I think what I would like to focus on. I relate to that. Mm-hmm. I relate to that quite a bit. Um, yeah. I, I've had an interesting sort of realization in the last year that like, I have no idea what physical size I am. Um, and part of that, not part of it. I think a lot of it is like gender stuff where I just feel like this kind of lumbering oaf. Um, and I have my whole life and I, I think that, you know, like I don't, I can't walk the way that somebody would have wanted me to walk as a child, you know, and, uh, I don't know how to hold my body like that. You know, like if I see some picture of somebody (laughs) with the side female birth that like just really knows how to hold their body a certain way, I don't know how to hold my body like that. Um, and you know, it's like, I think that, um, it's just interesting how that, like, I didn't, I don't think I realized that I thought of myself as like so unsmooth. I don't mean like in like a pickup way, but like, just like in the world, like that I was such a grading presence just on the air. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think, um, that's been awful to find out sad, you know, also helpful. Good to know that because then I can redirect my energy there and attempt to work through it. But, you know, some stuff is like, oh, God, please, no, (laughs) Um, you know, to find it out. Yeah, I think um, I hated being in a body, honestly. Like, (laughs) I hate having to feel so um, physically kind of like trapped when I feel like there's so much more and I won't be able to go into all of what I feel like is so much more. but. I'm here for a reason. I'm in this body for a reason. I feel like learning again to like love myself authentically has helped with that authenticity where I feel more comfortable in my body and I don't feel so enveloped by shame constantly. Like just the way I like curl in on myself and the way that I don't even want to be seen. And that has a lot to do with me being an introvert. Also, I hate the spotlight. I hate um, people like looking at me. But the more that I feel like my power raises with the self-love that I have, the more authentic I feel and the less uncomfortable I am with the idea that I'm in this body, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. Absolutely. How is it um, being an introvert and doing something like this? Awful. (laughs) So awful. (laughs) I have um, always, I mean, it, it really... 
Oh boy. Like I love, I honestly do love talking to other people, but more on a one-on-one, like this is really wonderful. Being on a stage in front of dozens of people, I hate being, I hate the feeling of being on a pedestal where I'm talking at people. I want to have a conversation and it's very hard to do when you're on stage in front of like about a hundred people. And I hate the feeling that I am somehow like separate and someone to be listened to rather than someone that can also listen and learn together with other people. Um, So that's what being an author slash like having this quote unquote platform, like literally being put on a platform has felt, um, it's felt, it's been difficult as an introvert where I would really rather have these kind of more authentic conversations and um, be able to, to listen also. Yeah, I hear you. I mean, it doesn't, you know, I think it, it it really is in people's makeup because it doesn't feel the same way to me to talk to a group of people actually feels like it feels more calming than mm-hmm. to talk one-on-one because a group of people to me that feels like one person, I can't, I mean, this is the best I can do to explain it, but like whether it's hundreds of people or thousands of people, that feels like one person. And I, I do talk to people from the stage and it feels uh, like connected it does feel like a conversation um and i think i can like do this you know interpersonal conversation but it's uh it's like flexing uh it's a it's a thing is i'm i'm working at it Mm. it's like not my natural thing my natural thing is actually the other one I wish we could just exchange some energy and i could have some of (laughs) what you have that's beautiful. I haven't thought of it that way of like looking out at a stage of a thousand people and feeling like they're one person. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, you know, look, I can like get really nerdy on this, but it does, you know, an audience, um, there is like an, that actually is an organism, you know, like mm-hmm. they, they're like breathe together. And because especially if you're doing something like joking around because people laugh and there is, there's like a, curve to laughs where Mm. you know there's like a moment where people catch their breath and you can actually sync that up you know if you're in your own body and i'm in my own body actually this is i feel very present in my body on stage in a way that i don't usually elsewhere Mm. it's kind of a cool weird side effect where i feel very like focused on my breath and then i think i really feel that i can sync up the audience and they they're doing it too but like we're working together to do it and get everybody sort of in the same page and it's uh creating a thing that won't exist again like Mm -hmm. that that group of people will never be together again and they'll never be together with me in that room again and so it's like it's yeah it's like creation of an organism that is processing oxygen and and sharing things that um that will just go away it'll just evaporate as the show's so over. fascinating. That's like, that's a really fascinating description. And you consider yourself an introvert also, you said? Yeah, I mean, I do because being around people is exhausting, yeah. um, you know, but, um, but I think I'm an, I always thought I was an extrovert because I can do it. Like, I think, I think when I, this, when these things were described to me when I was younger, I thought it was like an introvert sort of has a more difficult time talking to people and an extrovert likes talking to people. And I think because I can like sort of slip into this other state where I feel like I'm like using my body almost as a machine. Mm-hmm. I think I mistook that for um, being an extrovert. Right. 
because it really turns out that being an introvert, introvert is more about where you get your energy from. It's like, I have to be alone. Yeah. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. exactly. It's a battery system, not like a whether or not you talk to people system. But I don't exactly. think I understood that until later. Yeah. Yeah. So when you're writing, does that feel like a battery charging time? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That um, it's funny because, you know, as I was describing earlier with kind of like starting the spiritual journey in the beginning, I really did get very deeply involved in like meditating like every day for hours, crystals, like constant research. And I kept on getting the message of like, calm down, <laughs> like relax, like this will always be here and this is great. And it's wonderful that I've started kind of like a more of a in-depth exploration of myself. But the meditation for me has always been writing and that's always been where I completely lose myself and I can enter this flow state. And um, it's never, this has never happened to me before. And I hope it continues because it was wonderful, but I wrote a book in like 10 days just now and sent it to my agent. And it was, it was because I couldn't stop it. I mean, on the one hand, I constantly questioned, is this healthy? <laughs> like, is this a coping me- mechanism? Is it because I'm anxious because I'm moving home? Like, those were all my thoughts, but I also haven't been that excited in a long time and haven't felt like that, um, like engulfed in that flow state of just continuing. I didn't really want to do anything else. I didn't want to play my video games. I didn't want to watch TV. So, um, yeah, writing is like, I-, I feel that writing is why I'm here. I feel like writing is my... Yeah, I don't know if the I don't know if the coping mechanism that having a thing that that does that for you, I don't know that that has to be negative. You know, that's what Mm -hmm. I've been thinking a lot about for myself in that I haven't been able to perform in like the last, you know, over a year now. And and, well, I've like done it via Zoom. It's it's fine. But like, um. It doesn't have that thing. And I think that for a while then I wanted to like pathologize it because it's like one of my, you know, again, is it, is this the running away again? Like if I can Mm -hmm. like get into this zone that sort of feels like being on drugs in a way, way, like, is that a negative thing? Um, And the jury's out for me, you know, I don't, I don't totally know because it does really affect my chemistry and like the way that I like really affects me. And so I don't know, you know, I don't know. Like, do I, is that okay? You know, or can I like mix it into a, a balanced life and still be healthy? So I'm curious about that for myself. Yeah. I think, I, I think balance might be the, the keyword where right now I, w- I kind of want to jump right into it also again and go back to writing a whole no- new novel in the next 10 days. And it's like, no, it's okay to actually sit and eat and do some laundry and play a video game and, and then yeah. maybe um, take my time as I, I start to write and I'm curious because I'm going back to what you were talking about with like the organism that's on stage do you feel like that same energy through zoom or is it um just completely different I somewhat feel it there was a minute at the very beginning of the pandemic where I was trying to do stand-up for like just a camera and I would then I was I was like trying to tape something to then put out in the world and then um, just using like multiple cameras and just myself. And that like didn't work at all. I was like torture. Mm. Um, Why didn't I could it do work? it, but it wasn't fun. Well, because so even on Zoom, even if everybody's muted, um, there is like an energy that I could feel. 
Um, and so just, you know, what I found out is like just alone in my house, I actually don't want to, it doesn't go. It like just doesn't go. It's not, I don't want to, it just doesn't like click in. Mm -hmm. Um, so it can click in on zoom, which is interesting to find out, but it's not the same thing. So yes, I think that that can be created. Um, which is really cool to find out, you know? Um, yeah. It's interesting. I think so too. Yes, it is interesting. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. Yeah. It's been helpful for me as someone who prefers these one-on-one -on -one conversations because um, different like festivals or, or conferences I would have gone to as an author um, and I would have been sitting in front of like hundreds of people. Now I don't even see the audience. They're just not there. And, you know, it would basically be a similar setup where I'm talking to you on Zoom and I can pretend it's just us and I feel so much better. It's so much nicer. I don't want things to change. I don't want them to go back. <laughs> that's, yeah, that, that's really interesting. I mean, for me, I feel like I can feel everybody that's there, mm, which is very... Really? Wow. Yeah. I don't know. That is true, though. Yeah. I'm glad I don't feel anyone. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't like it. Well, Kaysen, it's been, it's been really nice to talk to you. We're like almost at the end of our hour. And so I want to, um, I want to ask you to do something that I ask all the guests to do, which is to shout out a queero, um, which is like a person, place or thing that made you feel that you could be who you are today. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is I feel like I do have to shout out, um, fan fiction again and just talk about how, um, fan fiction archive of our own fanfiction.net was really just kind of like doing the heavy lifting for queer stories before um, the quote unquote mainstream would really accept us. So fan fiction writers out there, if you're listening, y'all are great. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel like my it's funny, like I was not into fan fiction at all, but I was into like early YouTube days of like, I mean, this is, I don't know, they're like, they're like the fan vids. They're like ship vids. Have you ever like, have you ever watched? Okay, let me, I'll describe no. it to you. I'll describe <laughs> it to you. Because this is my version of this. It's like before we, before there was, before there were like queer stories that made any sense on television or in movies. I mean, there's always like, you know, we do have a legacy. There are like some, you know, films going back. Then when you get to the end of all those films then it's over and you've watched all the films. And so like, right. what is one going to do next? Um, and early YouTube days, like this still exists, but, but it was so important to me. It would be like, it's like somebody cutting together, like all the meaningful glances, glances between two characters <laughs> and then like overlaying like an evanescence song or like something that's like just so emotive. Um, and then like, yeah, it's like, three minutes of that, just like glance, 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 yeah. glance, you know? And then like, and then like at the end, it's like forever or whatever, like drifts across the screen. Yeah. And like, no, I used I know to watch that shit so now. much. <laughs> I know what you're talking about now. Absolutely. Yes. People still do that. They still, they, I know. they've gotten like, <laughs> the, the videos have gotten um, like super high tech also. So I think it's funny though. I mean, yes, people still do it. I think what's funny about it is that like, First of all, yay to those people. Honestly, you are doing a service. I just want to shout out those people. Um, or like something else that it, it's like eventually then queer content actually happened. And so the videos changed as subtly where it would be, it's like a whole series of a show, maybe not even a show that ever played in the US, like mm -hmm. that's played in Spain or like, you know, Argentina, whatever it is. And there's like, there are like 30 second 
scenes between characters that then somebody yeah. has compiled and so it's the entire season and like slash scam. I don't yeah. think you've seen that, but Scam is like, yeah, they, that has a good one of like all the collection moments of all like the, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Or like, about. it feels like you're like, God, this is like the, this is like the gayest show I've ever seen. But then like, <laughs> it's like, actually that was over like 15 seasons, <laughs> like 30 seconds at a time. But it's also honestly the only thing I would have wanted to see anyway. So thank you, person, Ex- for exactly. <laughs> I'm totally fine with it. Yeah, exactly. I just it's really just a shout out to the amount of combing that that person did. Yeah, like where where it like looks like wow, this is what was this show? This like happened? Just like this? No, no, this is five seasons. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> anyway, Kason, I really love talking to you and. um I wish you the best of luck, you know, with your move, especially. Thank you. Yeah, I'll keep you in my in my thoughts. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs>